Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. So uh, today on the show, I'm laughing because we were just having a conversation before the show started that could have been part of the show, too, uh, when David Edelstein and I talked, which we've been doing for decades now. Um, it's sort of hard to tell which is the part that belongs on the air and which is the part that doesn't, although there are occasions where that dichotomy is very clear. David Edelstein is America's greatest living film critic. He's also my longtime friend. Uh, and we're going to be talking a little bit later in the show today, kind of a long converse, long form conversation about the future of movies and why movies matter, what we get out of them, uh, and what happens if they don't exist anymore in their theatrical form that you, you just don't go see them in theaters. We'll, we'll talk about all of that and maybe about some movies that are meaningful to us and that might be meaningful to you. But before we do that, we're going to talk about it. Like before a we little... do that, Colin, before we do that, I just yeah. want to say, yeah. I don't know if everybody knows, but I've decided what the coolest thing to do during a pandemic is. Oh, what is that? You know what that is? No. The absolute coolest thing you can do in the world. Yeah. Host a daily radio show. <laughs> Well, I'm I mean, not on. living. That is that. you, man, are doing it right now. You are you are keeping alive. You are keeping us alive. You are holding you're holding forth from your your home fortress recording studio. It's uh, it's a dream. It's an yeah. absolute dream. Well, it's it's something anyway. I, although somebody else was saying something nice about to me about journalists today, and I said, "Yeah, we're not nurses, you know. Nurses are everything now." Um, and so, yeah, it's maybe cool to be doing a daily radio show, but there are people doing a lot more important things. I, I mean, no, that's absolutely. we have absolutely. new. We, we're I hope they're listening heroes. to us in Hartford Hospital in the in the break room and everything right now, so we can tell them how much we love them and St. Francis and. Mount Sinai is that still there? Yeah. Well, the, and this is this is getting a little bit ahead of what I want to talk about Sorry, right now. Okay. But I, but that's okay. Let's do it for a second anyway. I I do feel as though, you know, when after what we've seen here and what we after what we've seen, doctors and nurses and some first responders and you know people who just you know had to stay in their jobs through this, we we are exchanging heroes. You know, I. I I'm. I don't know if Iron Man. Well, Iron Man's gone anyway. But I don't know if the, these other heroes are going to cut it anymore. I'm thinking that maybe there'll be a wave of movies, not specifically about the pandemic, but about people who are heroic in ways that we hadn't really tended to count up on our fingers. Sure. I mean, doctors and nurses and and uh, uh, grocery clerks and uh, yeah. delivery people, but particularly doctors and nurses and. I'm I'm happy about that because I think the medical profession. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents, as you know, are are were both MDS, and my mother was practicing uh, scarily enough up until a few years ago. Uh, thank God she's retired, um, finally, for the sake of her patients. Um, but anyway, she uh, it was just psychiatry. She was just screwing them up mentally, uh, <laughs> not not physically. So don't don't he's, don't worry he's about kidding, that. Kidding, Mrs. Edelstein. What? Sorry. He's t I'm just telling your mom that you're you're kidding. Okay, yes, I'm I'm kidding. Uh, not really, but uh what was I even saying? Oh, I just want to say that there was a loss of 
you know, with with hedge funders and lawyers and and MBA types and I don't know do- doctors. That profession kind of dipped a little bit, and mm-hmm. now in in the prestige sweepstakes, and now I can think of you know all these kids dreaming of being doctors and going out to the front lines. You know, when I left criticism the first time, I uh, applied to medical to pre medical schools. I was going to go be a doctor. And uh, uh, Pauline Kale talked me out of it. She wrote me a recommendation for medical school, but she said, oh, we really need you as a critic. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> well, wanted, it, it, I, want, I wanted to be Chekhov, you know, right. write and treat people. Right. Well, or uh, William Carlos Williams. Was he or was William it? Carlos Williams. Yeah, he's closer to home. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, and when you really think about it, there have not been, I mean, doctor shows are a thing on television, you know, and they never go away and they just have different names and franchises. Yeah. It's hard to think of a lot of really totally medically themed significant movies of the last 15 or 20 years. And that's just got to change now. It has to. It has to. There's just this funny thing. Well, actually, if you look at some of the documentaries coming out of Syria and Iraq, a lot of them are set inside these makeshift hospitals where Russian bombs are falling around and doctors are, you know, 72, 96 hours treating hundreds of, of people being brought in in places like Aleppo. And they are extremely inspiring. But whether or not we have that in movies, I, I don't know. I mean, medical movies and TV shows have never told the truth about anything. Like one time I, I knew this writer who worked on the show House and I said, you know, it's really wonderful that your doctor they're so adventurous and they go perform brain surgery, you know, at the drop of a hat. And, you know, they don't even need like to book the, the room. They can just bring the patient down there and open up his skull. Um, I said, I, it's just it's just really interesting because it seems most of what doctors do these days is argue with insurance companies <laughs> about whether or not they're going to cover the procedure. And he said, oh, well, you know, that was at the very beginning when we sat down, we said the one thing that word that will never be mentioned on the show is insurance. Mm. Well, if you don't mention insurance, then, then you're not, then it's not really a medical show. I mean, you're not really, you're not really, uh, uh, if that doesn't factor in, then it's as much of a fantasy as Iron Man. Right. You know what bothered me about House? Or I, I knew we were going to go off on tangents, and I think that's a good <laughs> thing. But what bothered me about House, which as we all know, was I think uh, consciously modeled on Sherlock Holmes. Um, Not, uh, very openly, Holmes very openly, house. yeah, openly and consciously modeled on Sherlock Holmes. Holmes, oh, Holmes, you get it, Holmes, Holmes, Holmes. House. So Holmes, Holmes House. House. Oh, wow. you know, yeah. I never put that together. Actually, you didn't so, know that? yeah, no. That's, so, that's why he was called House. So part of the fun of of either of Sherlock Holmes thing, but particularly of something like House, is uh, for those of us sitting home watching it, it w- was sort of you know this symptom, that symptom. You know, we all know a little bit about medicine, or we think we know a little bit about medicine, and so you're thinking, oh well, yeah. So pressure treated wood, maybe he's got cyanide poisoning, blah 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 blah. You know, and then at the end, House would suddenly go, have you recently, within the last 90 days, been in a certain district of West Portugal where this little <laughs> tiny fly lives that only lives there and can bite you and cause this disease there that occurs in one one thousandth of the po- population? You know, and you'd go, well, that's not fair. <laughs> you know? We were playing along at home. That's <laughs> and, right. So anyway, that's right. so 
we're going to get back to movies and the future of movies. And I yes. should, you know, full disclosure, David and I are in talks with a couple of studios right now uh, to pitch an, uh, a movie where Adam Driver uh, is an Amazon delivery guy. We can't say too much more about it, uh, but there's certainly an awful lot of interest. It's, it's good to be in talks. I, I've discovered that in show business. Um, so th- before we get to the movies, we I have nobody else that I can talk to you about this uh, other than you. So uh, there's this little kerfuffle. Maybe it's a big kerfuffle. Maybe it's a tempest in a teapot. Uh, it's hard to say, but it involves uh, the writer Ronan Farrow, who is 32 years old. He's the son of Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. Uh, all hell broke loose last weekend when Ben Smith, the new, fairly new media critic of The New York Times, published a piece called Is uh, Ronan Farrow Too but Good to Be True? And his argument is that the work that Farrow has done for NBC News and The New Yorker and his, for his own book Catch and Kill, and it gets very confusing because it's all of those things, doesn't always pass muster, doesn't always square well with interviews that Farrow then gives to promote his own work. He claims things in those interviews that are not really there in the work. Um The key arguments of Farrow's work have to do with Harvey Weinstein, with the misdeeds of Matt Lauer, and also with a conspiracy within NBC when he was working with them uh, to bow to threats from Harvey Weinstein and kill Ronan Farrow's work. I'm trying to summarize this unbelievably complicated 4,000-word story, and I'm not going to do that good a job of it. But it's sort of, you know... It, it drags in all kinds of different people, like David Remnick, the much revered uh, editor of The New Yorker, uh, The New York Times itself and its reputation. Everybody else in the media has wanted to weigh in on this one way or another. We're not going to solve it sitting here. Uh, but um, I, I don't know. What did you make of all this? Oh, boy. Well, it it. It is a factor. It factors into uh, what I do as a film critic and uh, as a quote unquote influencer, <laughs> um, because questions about Woody Allen come up all the time. And and um, uh, so Ronan Farrow's credibility and his stature uh, in the media right now uh, are are of paramount importance. Um, um, but let me let me just set aside the the Ben Smith article for a second and mm-hmm. just say that um, uh, this is a, as you know this is a very tough area for me. I've known people who were molested uh, at the age that uh, uh, Dylan Farrow claims to have been. I I know they're very fearful. They won't be believed. I know that nobody knows what happened. But he was he the charges against him were dismissed at the time uh, twenty years ago. We've all known about them. All the actors in Allen's movies have known about him. All the Academy members who voted for those actors, all the critics who celebrated those movies. And then one day you can't, in most polite circles, say a good word about Woody Allen. So what changed? What changed? Well, you know, why does a New York Times critic write a piece asking how he can wipe off the ill effects of Woody Allen worship? Why do actors apologize for working with Woody Allen and donate their salaries to I don't know, battered women's shelters. I mean, it's me too, of course, but that's not enough for a charge like this that was never proven. If it was just Mia Farrow in her Upper East Side apartment sending out tweets, it would go nowhere. It's that. Alan's son is a celebrity whose work helped launch this movement and whose celebrity looms large. It, he, in, in many ways, when Ricky Gervais joked about him at the Golden Globes, about everybody being terrified about, of him, it wasn't a joke. It was absolutely true. 
Everyone is terrified of Ronan Farrow coming into their lives. And, you know, this little pipsqueak, sorry, I mean, he, you know, he does <laughs> wield an insane amount of influence. I, you know, he's, he seems really a lively and interesting and funny guy, but, but he's also, uh, uh, you know, the, the power is, uh, of he, to cancel people, to end careers, to, um, to, to basically raise any kind of conspiracy theory he wants to raise and have it go pretty much unquestioned is staggering. So when this piece comes out, and, uh, you know, I don't know about the piece. What did you think? I mean, do you think that, that he made his case, that Ben Smith made his case, that, that you know, Ronan Farrow was someone whose repertorial skills, were, whose ethics were suspect? Do you think he made his case? Um, partially. Let me just say this. Um, first of all, I, I think one case that he makes that stretches between the work of Ronan Farrow and the Woody Allen stuff that you're talking about is that notion that a certain kind of narrative develops in the news. Uh, and if you can write a piece, if you can do some reportage that seems to align with that narrative, to go with the flow, to follow that tide, you know, you, you have an advantage over a piece that goes against that tide and that, that Farrow has kind of ridden that wave pretty well. I, I thought one of the most shocking things in the piece was a little tiny thing said by a journalist for whom I have a lot of respect, uh, Ken Oletta. Oh, Ken Oletta, yeah. yeah, with friends like that. Yeah. With well, champions he says, like Ken yeah. Oletta. <laughs> so Ken Oletta, who'd been a, apparently a big supporter of Pharaoh and maybe one of the reasons Pharaoh landed at the New Yorker, he says something to the effect that, you know, he doesn't always cross all the T's and dot all the I's, but at, at the end of the day, he's got the big story. Something, I, th I, I, I that's basically what the quote is. And I, yeah. I, my jaw dropped because... Crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's is pretty much that's, what separates journalism from, from fabulism and certainly what separates the New Yorker from the ruck of yeah. prose that's churned I mean, out. Means, means and ends should not be a question with the New Yorker. That's right. They, they're they people who paid a lot of money to check that every T is crossed and every I is dotted and uh, you know who will stop publication if the I is crossed and the T is dotted, um, as well they should. Right. So to me, that that's a little bit of a sign that maybe Smith's point, which is his overarching point, I think, is Pharaoh got really good at figuring out what kind of narrative sells and then plugging some stuff into that narrative, maybe backgrounding or pushing aside things that didn't fit that narrative, you know, and maybe did so in a way that's a, a little less acceptable than we but typically you know, think. You know, Colin, Harvey Weinstein was the dream subject for for Jody Cantor and for Ronan Farrow because you can't, you, you couldn't, have invented a fictional character quite like him, you know, hiring ex Mossad agents. I mean, this, this guy really was all that. And right. everybody knew it. Everybody who worked with him, everyone who was even vaguely in his orbit knew that. Okay. I mean, I knew that. And, uh, I didn't know the, um, I didn't know the, the molestation, but I knew, Oh, this actress is his mistress, and this actress is his mistress, and oh yeah, she got that part because she slept with him. And I mean, this was told to me by producers, you know, by people as high up in the business as you can imagine about actresses in Harvey's movies. Everybody knew it was a stinking cesspool. Everybody yeah. knew that that Miramax and then the Weinstein Company reeked as a place to work or as a place for women to go to act. And you know, uh, so this was a fantastic. Moby Dick for for Ronan Farrow. This was an amazing white whale. 
for him to spear and one who is frankly, you know, worthy of all his conspiracy theories. And I quite believe would blackmail people at NBC. I had no problem accepting that story. Maybe that's what makes it scary because part of what Weinstein was able to do was people who were investigating him, he investigated them. And that's a, that's a favorite technique of people with a lot of money now, uh, whether they're on the, the, the liberal left like Weinstein or, or they're on the right. Um, you know, they, they get the goods on you, so you can't tell on them. Right. The um, I don't know, reading this piece and reading some of the criticisms of Ben Smith that followed this piece and thinking about the players, Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein. You did know, you read Matt Lauer's defense? I did. Show? I read Matt Lauer's defense. Yeah, I mean, too. Matt Lauer write, writes a defense of himself. That That is fairly compelling. I mean, he yeah. is willing to say, I am the biggest jerk in the world. But, you know, I Ronan Farrow made up all this stuff. And you, you kind of want to say a plague on both their houses. Right. What did... Um, what did uh, uh, what's Oscar Wilde's famous line about fox hunting that is the unspeakable in pursuit of the inedible you know and, <laughs> and I sort of feel that way about all this I, I'm having a hard time finding a person that I can in a very unalloyed fashion uh, root for I, I just want to circle back to the first thing you said because it's a, uh, this is an area where I think you and I are in agreement which will be boring of course but for me when Ronan Farrow when Ronan Farrow first appeared on the scene I was already a little bit troubled by, yeah, his foundational story, which is that he clearly believes that his sister was molested. Uh, I, you know, am somebody who's read everything that I could get my hands on, including some of the actual reports and what we know about, you know, clinical studies that were done. And I lean heavily towards the idea that this didn't happen and, and that uh, that the that Dylan Farrow was kind of coached into thinking uh, that it did happen. And I know that's not a politically, particularly fashionable kind of opinion these days. It actually caused me on one occasion to turn down a chance to interview her on stage, you know, and then. So I, I share your sense anyway that, I mean, ironically, Hatchet is the public is the publishing house that published Ryan. Uh, 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 Pharaoh's book, uh, and then uh, Ronan Pharaoh's book, and, and then they turned down or they backed away from an agreement to publish Woody Allen's book. Arcade stepped up and published that book, and you know, there's just this kind of sense that Woody Allen is that he is the inedible at this point. You can't go near him. Nobody wants to touch him. He's too hot to handle. No, and I mean he's radio, and and it, it forces somebody like me, who, as I say, a very intimate knowledge of of sexual assault of children. Uh, you know, I am people I love, people I care about a great deal have, have, you know, undergone some of these traumas to have to, to have to speak up for, for Woody Allen. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not consistent with his, with his pathology, with anything else in his pathology. We're not talking about, uh, you know, 16 year old girls. We're not talking about 14 year old girls. We're talking about uh, a kind of disease that is does not seem to be manifest in his work. But, uh, you know, I'm talking out of my butt because I don't know, you don't know, no. nobody really knows. And and so we're, and it's very hard for a lot of us to say, we don't know. And then Woody Allen, of course, comes out with this book, which you've read it, right? Have you read it? I have not. The other person in the house has read it and, and oh. actually enjoyed it, but I have not. It, well, it's partly wonderful and it's partly appalling. Uh, it's written in a very youthful, funny voice. It's like an autobiography as a stand-up routine. 
And it's very self-deprecating when it comes to his work and his and even his basic intelligence. But what it isn't is self-analytical. There's a kind of denseness to Woody Allen that he's quite comfortable with because it allows him to get his work done, to maintain his routine and his extraordinary output. I once spent a couple of hours with him for a for a podcast, and he was very, very open and, and unpretentious and likable. And so at a certain point, I hit him with a question that I thought, was going to have me thrown out of the room, which was, uh, I said, some critics have said, I said, well, let's be honest. I've said that you work out of a completely closed ecosystem. Nothing that didn't come out before, say, 1965 enters in. Not music, not books, not philosophy, not movies. It all stops with jazz and Tennessee Williams and Ingmar Bergman, and you maintain that to get your work done. But, you know, it's a little bit of an airless, stifled, closed ecosystem and he looked at me and he said yes exactly exactly yes that's how i work yes and i I was like uh well because it sort of brought me up short because i was thinking then he would then go on to say well what the downside of that was and he saw no downside Mm -hmm. he's a man who you you would think that of of all people he would be capable of self-analysis and this book doesn't have any of that in it it's very funny it's raunchy it's it's lewd people complain that he tends to to value women if they're attractive which i know is aberrant but uh you know somehow you you go with it when you read the book um it's a it's a i don't know it's an it's a maddening infuriating i i wish i could get him here right now and talk to him about it i mean i have so many millions of questions for woody allen who was such a formative part of my growing up you know from the from you know the first time i saw bananas at showcase cinema in east hartford and uh, um annie hall at the elm you know yeah well this is a this is a good segue to the next conversation we're going to have which is about movies and and also about you know i mean maybe even woody's that woody allen's you know defense at least of his own position in life is is defensible um you know i mean (laughs) what you like is what you like what you what you immerse yourself in is what you immerse yourself in nobody else can pick your cannon for you at least that's something yeah go ahead this it's sort of it's almost poetic justice though what has happened to him because if you go through life uh saying that you can only function if you are really indifferent to the consequences of certain actions well (laughs) to have his son alleged son uh, you know uh come out like this, to, to have all the sort of freaky things in his personality conspire with, along with this new social movement to bring him down, there is a kind of poetic justice to it, but it, 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 it and it kind of makes him a little bit of a tragic character. Um, and someday someone might write, you know, a great biography on him or, or make a great movie about him, uh, because I still think the surface is, is, hasn't been scratched very deeply. Right. Or I should say, scratched, uh, but, he's not been scratched deeply. Right. In terms of uh, full disclosure, I should say, I was approached uh, sometime within about, about the last month or so about the possibility of interviewing him on stage with no audience uh, in support of this book that he's doing, and which I was willing to do. And then it turned out the sponsoring institution thought he was too radioactive. So I didn't get no. to ask him my Woody Allen questions. David, let's that's quickly right, take a break. That's right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, they were right. Right. I mean, as wrong as it is, they were right. No, I don't know. They would have gotten shelled. Well, they would. Yes, they were right in terms of sheer self-preservation as opposed to. They were right if they were thinking pragmatically. 
Right. Yeah, they probably made the right call in terms of their own survival. Uh, all right. <laughs> That's not always the right call, though. Uh, so let's uh, take a quick break. We'll come back with more of me and David after this. Our lines have come between us. Still, I know you just don't care. And I said, what about breakfast to Tiffany? She said. Before you came, I was all alone. It is bad to be alone. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. Friend. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Now come here. And what is this? This is wood for the fire. Wood. (laughs) And this is fire. No, no. Fire is good. Fire, no good. There is good and there is bad. Good. Bad. That, of course, is an illegally obtained audio recording of one of Matt Lauer's therapy sessions. But uh, no, it's not. It's uh, Bride of Frankenstein. It could be. It could be. He's just getting that whole good, bad thing sorted out right now. So um, David Edelstein is with us. Early roses are worse, I'll tell you that. They're they're really crazy. Um, So America's Greatest Living Film Critic David Edelstein is with us right now. So, yeah, um, we played that because it's one of your formative um, myths uh, or formative experiences, I guess. Is are the, you is... are you doing this? Is everybody out there listening doing this? Because you should all get out a piece of paper, open up your laptop, write down your twenty favorite movies, or write down the books that formed you, the movies that formed you, the TV shows, the the pieces of music. Write down all the things that culturally made you who you were, because the world has stopped for the moment, and this is when you can reflect on who you are vis a vis what influences you absorbed uh, at impressionable ages. That's what I've been doing. I think that's what you've been doing. That's what many of our Facebook friends have been doing. And uh, I think, uh, and I think it's healthy. I think it's really healthy. Well, it is. Yeah. As you probably know, I did the, I've, I got halfway through this, Facebook challenge of the 20 albums that made you who you are. And I sort of gave up, but I realized I could tell my entire life story that way. And I think you can tell your entire life story uh, pretty well in terms of movies. Uh, You started young. Uh, Shut up, Stella. Shut up, Stella. Sorry, that's my dog. (laughs) That's all right. We allow uh, barking dogs on these shows. Shut Um, up, Dumbo. Shut up. Dumbo, shut up. It's my elephant. Sorry. See, now I'm going going back to my soupy... I wanted to demonstrate soupy sales as a profound influence on who I am, and I've never gotten to do that before on radio. All right. So uh, we no, this is, wouldn't be the wrong time to talk about soupy sales, although I could have that conversation with you. <laughs> so, you know, we played Bride of Frankenstein. I mean, one of the things for you, one of the reasons that you wound up doing what you wound up doing, I think, are these movies that, I mean, I can't believe you went to see, actually, uh, instead of talk, starting with Bride of Frankenstein, I can't believe, maybe you told me this story once before, that at the age of 11, you sat through... This movie, Cat, play the French Connection uh, clip for us. 
You gonna tell us who your man is? When's the last time you picked your feet, Willie? Who's your connection, Willie? What's his name? What? Look. Answer him! No, no, man, no! Hey, no. Is it Joe the Barber? What? Joe the Barber, right? No. That's who it is, isn't it? Now, don't give us any What's Joe's last name? I don't know, man! Give it to me, yeah, I know he lives on 125th Street, man. About the barbershop. What side of the street do you live on? North or south? North or south? What are you talking about, man? I don't, I'm, I'm asking you what side of the street he lives on. Hey, when's the last time you picked your feet? Huh? Yeah, what's he talking about? I've got a man in Poughkeepsie who wants to talk to you. You ever been in Poughkeepsie? Huh? Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? Hey, man, come on, give me a break. Hey, what are you talking on, about, man? Let me hear you say it. Come on. Have you ever been in Poughkeepsie? You've been in Poughkeepsie, haven't you? I want to hear it! Come on! Yes, yes, yes. I've, I've been You've been there, right? Yeah, yeah. You sat on the edge of the bed, didn't you? You took off your shoes, put your finger between your toes, and picked your feet, didn't you? That's it! Yes! All right. You yes. put a shield on my partner. You know what that means? God damn it! All went wrong, I gotta listen to him gripe about his bowling scores. Now, I'm gonna bust your ass for those three bags, and I'm gonna nail you for picking your feet in Poughkeepsie. Wow, you really let that run on. So, little David Edelstein, 11 years old, yeah. you sat through through this twice? Bloomfield at the Bloomfield uh, it was a it was a wonderful little theater where they used to look the other way if you were 11 years old and you went to see the French Connection and which opens by the way with a man getting his face blown off and uh, I'd never seen anything like that before but I will maintain that it was actually very good because I grew up in what one day will be seen as this extremely artificial post-World War II environment, the the suburb, in my case, an upper-middle-class Jewish suburb of uh, West Hartford, Connecticut. And the counterculture and the decay of the cities was all but invisible to me. I was protected. Uh, I was one of those people who was very lucky to be protected. And I'm one of the few people who actually learned about the world through movies, largely because in the late 60s, you know, the um, the studio system was falling apart. Movies started to be filmed on locations. Cities like New York uh, formed divisions that would reach out to film companies and give them tax breaks. And so as a result, you had a new form of movie making coming in right at the time that the cities were collapsing. Uh, and it created this really a new genre, what Pauline Kael called the urban gothic, that, you know, New York became the modern house of horrors that no horror movie could compete with. And so movies like The French Connection and Serpico and Taxi Driver and all these films being shot on location, Mean Streets, although that was partly shot in California, oddly enough, for money reasons. But all these movies, this whole new generation of film directors were working on locations instead of in studios. And they were teaching some of us who had been cut off from this uh, about the world. Um, right, I th- it, I th- it's a paradox and it, it's a we- it's a weird paradox. It still doesn't really make sense to me. Well, I think another thing that intrigues me about it. So this is directed by William Friedkin, who went on to do The Exorcist. Uh, and those are kind of his two towering movies. Then he has a whole bunch of movies that people who like movies might be interested in. Uh, we can maybe mention those in a second. But so I interviewed Friedkin years ago. Uh, and I think it was either right before or right after his terrible heart attack. Um, so... So it would have been in the early 1980s. And, you know, he talked about being brought to the movies as a little boy to watch, you know, some, I think, probably fairly harmless thing. And he was sitting in one of the rear rows, a uh, very little boy, and the lights come on and the music comes up. And he just, he said he just started screaming. Uh, 
just the experience of seeing for the first time images thrown up onto a screen that way as he sat in the dark with the music it, it just made him scream um and he of course went on to make movies uh that little boys like david well, as see. children as children we all i mean i mean imagine my 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 daughter lucy the first movie i took her to after 10 minutes she she looked at us and said turn it off we yeah. said, well, we can't turn it off. And so we had to leave the theater. And it was it was just too kinetic. It was too, um, it, it brings you back to the time before there were movies when first audiences apparently fled their seats when they saw a train coming at them. And mm. in the film, The Great Train Robbery of 1902 or 1903. I mean, you know, films still have an, one reason that we can talk about these films for, for someone like me or for you is that films really really have formed us we are very malleable at that age we are very impressionable and a lot of these things uh, a lot of the reasons i became a film critic uh was to you know i wanted to explain my own self to myself mm -hmm. i wanted to know how i got here i wanted to explain my own responses to myself what was screwed up in my personality that had nothing to do with my parents and maybe nothing to do with my biology where did it come from and sure enough it came from movies and books and plays and uh, other things as well as you know wonderful healthy mind-blowing things like the bride of frankenstein which as i told you was important to me because uh it was the first time i realized that you could have a horror movie that was at the same time had pathos and tragedy and weird campy comedy and combine all these different seemingly contradictory tones and come out with a much fuller picture of life than than frankly what you were seeing around you at the time um i mean i mean i i i still seek out those things that make you say yes and no at the same time at movies and then and you know um, Bride of Frankenstein was really the first time it happened. And also, I think I also told you a Hartford stage company staged the Waltz of the Toreadors uh, when I was a kid that I saw. And it was the first time I ever realized that in the middle of a crazy slapstick bedroom farce, there could be a moment where you suddenly perceive the tragedy of these characters' lives and then go back to having fun. And that's really what being able to acknowledge different moods, different strains, different points of view, different ways of looking at the world, keeping them all in your head at the same time. That's what art teaches us. And that's what we, that's what we need right now when everything, it, people are trying to make everything so black and white. And, and yet we've never lived in such a, a miasma of grays. So, so, so many, you know, shades of gray ever, I don't think. Right. I know we are in this really weird liminal space, which is something we're going to be talking about on the show next week too. But, oh, um, good. But, liminal space that's yeah the thing. we're actually we're doing an entire show about liminality okay. uh which i think only we would probably do but um so yeah i mean you know i think my response as a child to that kind of movie was different i, I was a very fearful child i was easily scared my mother oddly enough had as a little girl growing up in western massachusetts in a very small town gone to see a lot of those kinds of movies kind of when they came out she used to tell me a story about going to see the original king kong uh, and then being unable to walk home 
and once again, this is kind of out in the country. She must have walked into town to see uh, this movie, and she was too afraid to walk home. And she eventually was able to find a phone and call her parents' house, and someone had to come get her. And they were completely furious. They had, you know, not even authorized this trip to the movies. And they also didn't understand there was going to be a a giant ape was going to pick her up. I mean, (laughs) I can understand ghost stories and stuff like that, but King Kong. Is, what did she think he was going to, you know, pick her up? And Well, I mean, once again, movies were, you know, no, movies true. were shocking in and of themselves, right. I think, You're at right. that point and No in one time. had ever seen anything like King Kong. Right, exactly. I feel sorry for kids who look at it now, all the, the crude special effects, and say, oh, that's so silly when, when it was, you know, this incredible feat of technology and imagination that formed a whole generation of moviegoers. So I'm, I apologize to your mother your mother's uh, uh, spirit for uh, <laughs> ridiculing her. Yeah. I, well, it's 1933, you know. Um, so, um, I, I, and I, just to sort of round out the that conversation, and this show is going way too fast. We're going to have to do a second hour or something. But, um, I mean, the first scary movie that I could really get through and derive satisfaction from really was Friedkin's The Exorcist, um, which was, which is, I think, despite what Beetlejuice says, Still a pretty scary movie. And... It makes me laugh every time I see it. <laughs> it's it getting funnier, he says. It keeps getting funnier. It's getting funnier um, and funnier every time I see it. But, God, is Beetlejuice a great movie. But, you uh, know, the, the Exorcist is a really scary movie, but I, I could survive it. Um, and, and it took a, like a long time in my life to be able to do that. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that Freakin does really well there with uh, with horror uh, and maybe William Peter Blatty gave him the material to do it with is, you know, the first half or so of the movie is really about someone who doesn't understand what's happening. Ellen Burstyn's character does not understand what's happening. We kind of know what's happening because we're in on the plot. But and, and there's something so we know it's called it. The Exorcist. Right, exactly. So, it's kind of a giveaway no right there. No Exorcist. Yeah. We would we would have tarred and feathered the projectionist. So it, and to me, that's one of the very scary kinds of movies is when you are watching someone who does not understand. Oh, yeah, all the disaster movies, you know, part of the suspense and the fun is when are they going to get what we know? Right. But the other thing about the – but see, the thing that bothers me about The Exorcist and always will is that it's just another one of those movies. And I mean no disrespect to organized religion or the Catholic Church, but it's sort of about how does evil get into this innocent little girl? Well, she's an actress. She's not married. She's surrounded by – gay people she i mean her you know here people who work with her are gay and and there's a suggestion of sort of sexual depravity and there's a suggestion of sort of loose upbringing you know no not proper discipline no real men in their lives i mean the catholic church has to move in and take over you know in order to purge the devil and that's a strain a sort of reactionary strain in horror movies that um you know that that helped to form me and that i've had to kind of kind of grapple with and and even uh shall i use the word exercise in myself some of those feelings over the years because uh that is that is one way that that is a sort of i mean i'll go to pauline kale again of course who is was a mentor and a great friend and you know the greatest film critic ever and she said the exorcist was the greatest recruiting poster for the catholic church since going my way and uh you know it's uh because you know if they can convince you to believe in demons um and and that they have the recipe for overcoming demons then 
they can get you to believe anything. Although um, yeah, I think I probably played this tune for you before, but I'll say it one more time. To me, the defining book about this is Philip Reef's The Triumph of the Th Therapeutic, which is a fairly oh, yes. conservative, uh, scathing commentary on the fact that an essentially therapeutic culture had replaced standardized religion and morals. And that was certainly true when The Exorcist came out. Everybody watching the movie, um, by and large, you know, 85% of the people uh, would have been much more likely to take their daughter to a psychotherapist than to an exorcist. Um, and so in order to make this exciting, you, you know, the, the movie challenges that supposition that that's the way. Psychotherapy the, does not work. There's, you yeah. can't achieve. You can't achieve through catharsis. True catharsis through psychotherapy, and we turn to horror movies for catharsis for that purging right. of emotions. And it was telling us it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. So the priests are just SEAL Team Six at this point. They come in exactly. At the, end. the priests are doing it. Although, and then, and then, of course, they they uh, guy writes Equus. Uh, you know, a few years later. All right, we, we can't go down that path. In fact, we have to take another break here. Okay. The show's going way too fast. David Edelstein is with me. We will be back after this. Don't know where to go to. Why don't you go where fashion sits? <laughs> Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. All right, uh, we're back uh, with the David Edelstein. Uh, Owen, may I interrupt for a second here? Because I I want to I want to try to wrangle this uh, this beast that we're doing here. All right, can, before um, you interrupt, yes. I, I have two assignments. Basically, yeah. one of them is I have to thank everybody who I did this oh, thing. Cat right, Pastor, yeah. Cat Pastor's in the studio keeping us on the air so we can work remotely. Jonathan McNichol is the guy who put these uh, th this whole show together. So thanks to them and all the people who work uh, in the background. All right, go ahead, wrangle. Yeah, I just want to say that I was listening. To the to the ad for uh, art and resiliency, and look, what is the purpose of art? The purpose of art, my old college professors used to say, was to to make things strange, so that we see things we take for granted in a new light. Well, as a consequence of this pandemic and this quarantine, this isolation, everything is strange now. The most the most mundane things are strange. So, what better time is there to take stock of who we are, how we live on this planet? Uh, you know, what we consume, what we absorb. I mean, this is this should be, I mean, my, my greatest regret is that we've been so uh, paralyzed at the beginning of this process that we didn't quite embrace the strangeness. You know, we didn't, we didn't, we still have time to kind of find a flow a creative flow here. And I'm not minimizing the suffering, the agony, the, the, I'm not minimizing all that, but I'm saying that that's going to exist no matter what. But if we can each of us find the flow, if we can each of us embrace the strangeness right now, this, this really could be a watershed moment. I totally agree. Um, but I think also the other thing we have to embrace, let's go back to some, one of the things that you said about, you know, how several different things, several different qualities, moods, virtues, vices can, can exist in one place. So mm -hmm. one movie that you and I were talking back and forth about on emails is a movie that, you know, when you live with somebody for a long time, you know that you can just turn to them and say, you want to watch X? And, and she'll always say, oh, yeah, let's watch that. So uh, one of the movies that's like that in this house is Michael Clayton. Let's hear a little clip uh, from George Clooney and Michael Clayton. I look back at the building and I had 
the most stunning moment of clarity. I, 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 I realized, Michael, that I had emerged, not through the doors of Kenner Bacalodine, not through the portals of our vast and powerful offer, but from the of an organism whose sole function is to excrete the, 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 the poison, the ammo, the defoliant necessary for other, larger, more powerful organisms to destroy the miracle of humanity. And that I had been coated in this patina of for the best part of my life. The scent of it and the stain of it would in all likelihood take the rest of my life to undo. And you know what I did? I took a deep cleansing breath and I set that notion aside. I tabled it. I said to myself, as clear as this may be, as potent a feeling as this is, as true a thing as I believe that I have witnessed today, it must wait. It must stand the test of time. And Michael, the time is now. Yeah. All right. So that's, of course, Tom Wilkinson uh, giving one of his incredible speeches as Arthur, this tormented, uh, manic, depressive uh, lawyer who is trying to seek morality where there is none. Uh, he is uh, mirrored a little bit by uh, Michael Clayton, the George Clooney character, who on the surface of things is kind of a fixer with a gambling problem, who's an unlikely source of moral action. Um, and I don't know, David, I mean, first of all, the writing on this uh, on this movie, which is written and directed by Tony Gilroy, is just really, really terrific. Tony and- Gilroy wrote the final scene of this film. Uh, I have committed to memory and I had to watch it about eh, 35 times. And sometimes I lie if I can't fall asleep at night because the ambulances are going by. I, I, I do it again. I've, I've played out this whole scene in my mind because it's such a beautiful piece of dramatic construction how george clooney's fixer michael clayton sort of homes in on uh, uh karen uh, the the lawyer played by tilda swinton who is who is you know uh ordered his michael clayton's murder and arthur's murder um and and i think that um first of all just as a as a piece of writing it's dazzling but also i i think more than ever now as we we sit in our homes, many of us impotent and angry, um, we have to treasure the whistleblowers and uh, we have to come up with more fantasies, more heroic. Every time I, I'm doing the New York Times crossword puzzle and, you know, uh, the word, you know, rat comes up, you know, as an, you know, a stoolie, a stool pigeon, a rat, you know, I get really angry because this should be the year of the rat. We should be, whistleblowers should be are great heroes. Uh, Tom Wilkinson's char- character is a killer lit- litigator on an industrial poison case. He knows the case reeks, but a combination of his conscience and stopping taking his bipolar meds, not necessarily in that order, uh, cr- you know, it creates this, this profound epiphany where, where he decides that he is going to um, try to save the world from, from this industrial poisoning and moral poisoning. And Michael Clayton, who is who is just trying to get along, um, trying trying to keep his keep his head above water um, and his family alive, um, ultimately, you know, will will make the ultimate sacrifice and blow the whistle, too. And um, I you know, those stories are so important for us right now. I mean, can you imagine if, you know, wouldn't it be great if like Bill Barr woke up tomorrow and started going, I'm Shiva, God of death. And he starts, starts spilling out all the Trump, uh, you know, all the all the recordings, all the secret memos, all the all the Trump stuff. And, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be a different world? 
It would bef- definitely be a different world. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, you got the wrong horse in that race, though. I mean, well, uh, but, okay. but, but the Arthur actually was supposed to be a killer litigator. He right, was supposed right. to be a monster. I actually had a hard time seeing that. And Tom Wilkinson, great as he is, it was a hard time seeing that in his performance because he seems such a sweetie. But, uh, but the idea is this is a Bill Barr character. This is a ruthless man who undergoes this, pheno- this phenomenal, you know, 180 flip. Yeah, we're almost out of time here, but I think the point you're making is a really good one, too. So one of the things that movies allow us to do, certain movies, is, but we, sometimes we forget to do it, is to extract from it, you know, its sense of moral or ethical agency. You know, like who figured out how to do the right thing and how did they f- figure it out? I was telling you that we re- rewatched, not for the first time, Witness the other night. You know, where Harrison Ford is, you know, I mean, he's a moral, ethical guy, but then he learns something else from the Amish. Maybe the Amish learns something else from him. I doubt uh, it. You doubt <laughs> <laughs> I doubt the Amish learn anything from Harrison Ford. Right. We know that Kelly McGillis. I love McGillis... that movie, but that, that movie's a crock, but I, lo- I adore it. Yeah, I adore it, but... but it's also about somebody, you know, trying to do the right thing, and I think that thrills yeah. us, too. Uh, sure, sure, absolutely. And, you know, the crisis of conscience, the, the you know, the drama of, of, of conscience, the conversion drama, that is one of one of our greatest, one of our most exciting for a reason. It says that anybody, I mean, some of us maybe dream that certain uh, chief executives would uh, rise to the occasion, despite, you know, the awfulness of, uh, of his or her past, uh, but that, that didn't happen. Um, but there's still, there's still hope. We still g- can hope for a conversion narrative in all of our lives, things we've been bl- blind to, things we've, 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 we've done that we know in our hearts we shouldn't do. Art, art can teach us that. And, and, you know, as Roger Ebert said, movies are an empathy machine. Um, you, you know, it teaches you how to see other people's points of view, how to see the world through their eyes. And um, uh, God, we need that more than ever. And, and of course, we're going into a much more private culture now. You know, we're pretty much I don't we haven't talked about the future of movies, but I don't know if movie theaters will be back in the same way. They probably won't be. Uh, people have told me that, I mean, the, the economic model was teetering as it was. And this will, you know, streaming may be the way of the future for the vast majority of films that we see and and the boundaries between movies and tv may may melt together and become and, but we'll still we'll still have the things that we cherish david edelstein you've landed the plane beautifully i just don't want you to overshoot the runway we have to go uh, but we'll have to do this again very soon because an hour was not enough thank you all for listening